Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute uh, to tonight's event on disease and the problem of evil. The Lumen Christi Institute is a Catholic educational nonprofit located next to the University of Chicago, dedicated to engaging the university and the wider culture with the depths and breadths of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Tonight's event stands in line with a range of programs that we have hosted um, over the past years, engaging in the broader dialogue of science and religion. You can find out more about these events, including viewing our videos on genome editing and CRISPR, the religious origins of modern science and evolution in Catholic faith and so on at our website. We also have several great upcoming events that I'd invite you to tune into. This Thursday at 7 p.m., we continue our spring webinar lecture series on faith and reason in medieval Christian thought with Barbara Newman from Northwestern University on a giving a lecture on Hildegard of Bingham. Other events that we have in the hopper include a dialogue on apocalypticism in times of crisis with Bernard McGinn and Wilhelmine Otten and a moderated conversation on, Christi on Christians in times of catastrophe on Augustine's City of God with professors Russell Hittinger, Father Michael Sherwin, and Jennifer Frey. If you enjoy this program and want to support our efforts to engage the contemporary university and contemporary culture with the Catholic intellectual tradition, you can support our efforts at www.lumenchristi.org donate. I'm especially grateful tonight to our co-sponsors who have helped make this event a success. America Media, the, Social, the Society of Catholic Scientists, the St. Benedict Institute, the Beatrice Institute, the Collegium Institute, the Nova Forum, the St. Paul University Catholic Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the Program on Religion and Medicine at the University of Chicago. And you can find links to the web pages for each of these at the event page at our website. Tonight's program is made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. Foundation. Our event tonight featured two prominent scholars who straddled the domains of science, theology, and philosophy. Jeffrey Bishop is the Tenant Endowed Chair in Healthcare Ethics, Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Theology at St. Louis University. He holds an MD from the University of Texas and a PhD in Philosophy from the University of Dallas. Bishop's scholarly work is focused on the historical, political, and philosophical conditions that underpin contemporary medical and scientific practices and theories. He has written on diverse topics from transhumanism and enhancement technologies to clinical ethics, consultation, and medical humanities. Dr. Bishop is the author of The Anticipatory Corpse, Medicine, Power, and the Care of Dying, and is currently working on a second book titled Chasing After Virtue, Neuroscience, Economics, and the Biopolitics of Morality. Stephen Meredith is professor in the Department of Pathology, Neurology, and Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of Chicago, where he also teaches courses on literature, philosophy, and theology. He works on the biophysics of protein structure, concentrating on the amyloid proteins associated with the neurodegenerative diseases. He also teaches courses in the college on James Joyce's Ulysses, St. Thomas Aquinas, Augustine's City of God, and other authors, particularly Dostoevsky and Thomas Mann. His main theological interest is in the problem of evil. And in this connection, he is currently writing a book on the philosophical and literary perspectives on disease. His current interests also center on the impact of biotechnology and the genetic revolution on the definition of human nature. Um, I invite both of our speakers to um, turn on their cameras and to turn on their mics. Um, I'm going to disappear from the stage and allow the conversation here to continue. Um, welcome, Jeff. Welcome, Stephen, today. Um, and just one note for our listeners out there today, um, this is an interactive space. And so towards the end of the program, we will have an opportunity for questions from the audience um, to be read out. Um, but at any time, you can feel free to pose these questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. All right, Jeff. All right, Stephen, I hand the screen over to you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Um, we're, we're here in this, uh, this, I guess we'll call it a COVID moment, a moment where we uh, are faced with uh, a disease um, that uh, can be very threatening to human life. Um, 
And it's kind of rocked our social structures, our political structures, and kind of brought into relief questions that have been perennial questions uh, in the history of humankind. Um, and, and so um, I suppose the, the thing to do is to, to in this COVID moment, uh, is to pause and to, to think on the history of the tradition, uh, particularly the, the Christian intellectual tradition, both in its philosophical and its theological uh, modes, and to uh, reflect again upon something that maybe, maybe contemporary culture hasn't really spent a lot of time thinking about, namely, uh, evil, namely uh, philosophical engagement with evil, um, but also theological engagement uh, with evil. I, I, at the end of my book, um, I was uh, essentially doing a kind of analysis of the philosophical underpinnings that kind of shaped medical practice. And uh, as I kept teasing apart the philosophical bits, uh, I kept finding no space to, to really find a place to anchor in, to find some, some ground of truth. And I ended the book with a question, which is really more of a statement. And it was, might it not be that only theology can save medicine? And I think that uh, the COVID moment is giving us an opportunity to reflect again upon uh, human frailty, uh, the frailty of our knowledge, um, as well as, as the frailty of our ideas about good and evil. Um, and so we're gonna talk about disease and the problem of evil, and particularly we're gonna try to put it in some context. And so I'm gonna turn it over to Stephen and just sort of put out there, you know, Stephen, what, what, what does, well, first of all, what is the problem of evil? And then what does disease have to do with it? Thanks, Jeff. Um, and let me first start by thanking all the sponsors in the Lumen Christi Institute. Well, first of all, the question is, for whom is evil a problem? Why is it a problem at all? And I'm going to state as succinctly as I know how the problem of evil, which is, if God exists, whence evil? Now, that's how a fifth century author, Boethius, put it. And let me pull it apart a little bit. The, the question is, if God exists and is all-powerful and perfectly good, how is it that we can find evil in the world? Now, of course, this, um, as stated, evil is a problem for theists. Uh, it's not that um, non-theists are not bothered by evil, but it doesn't have that same um, theological underpinning, uh, religious underpinning. Um, now, let me point out one other thing about this, and that is that um, when Boethius stated the problem of evil, people quote that first part, but there's a second half of the line, which is equally important. And I'm just going to say it and leave it, um, leave it aside. And that is, if God does not exist, whence the good? Where does good come from? Okay, we'll leave that part aside. Say one more thing two more things about the problem of evil. One is that there is a kind of a solution to the problem of evil, whether it's a good or an adequate solution is a matter of opinion. But um, within the Christian tradition, starting with Augustine, continuing on with Thomas Aquinas, um, a, a, a typical solution to the problem of evil is to say, is, has to do with the state of being verb the verb is. When you say that something is evil, what do you mean by that? And what they said was that evil is not a substance, meaning that um, it can only exist in something else that is a substance, uh, in a context of a substance. And so evil consists of the loss of the goodness of a substance. We're all substances. Everything that exists is a substance. So evil consists in, in the loss of goodness of a substance. All right, now the final thing I wanna say kind of as a philosophical bedrock about um, the problem of evil is that Thomas Aquinas argued that evil can be divided into two, um, two things. The Latin words are pina and culpa. And culpa just means guilt or fault. So that's pretty straightforward. 
The problem is pina. Pina can be translated as either pain or punishment. And there exactly is one of the big problems. The, um, the illustration with which this webinar began depicted Job. And we have to remember that among the many things that Job suffers was a disease. When we think about COVID-19, the pandemic, there's a lot of suffering. It's from the disease directly and indirectly. But is it also a punishment? And that's one of the questions. Um, was Job being punished? And we can maybe talk about that a little bit as well. Okay, enough, Jeff. Well, I, I guess I guess the, the next set of questions is, what do you think modern science has done to, uh, to the question of evil as uh, thought of as disease or disease thought of as evil. I mean, what, what do you think science has brought to bear? Um, is, it, is it, what are the fruits that it might have, have given us? But also, you know, what, what do we lose in gaining those fruits perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way to put it, Jeff. Um, I think um, one of the, if there's, there are a few silver linings to this pandemic, and one of them is that people who might not otherwise realize how much science has given us are coming to realize that. So science has, you know, I'm a practicing scientist. I take it very seriously um, and I believe in it. It's a matter of conviction, um, not just, you know, not just something I do. That said, it's also created some problems for us. I like to joke that scientists don't, biologists don't necessarily believe in the existence of life, even though it's the science of life. Why? Because the, um, what biologists typically do, and I'm as guilty of this as any, is to reduce living forms to their physical chemical basis. So that's one thing we've lost. And with that, um, I think we've separated, divorced entirely, the moral aspects of the universe from the existential aspects of the universe. In other words, we can talk about biology, but where is the good and evil in biology? Um, is, does it have a place? Um, or is that simply to be caused aside? And if you say yes, there's a problem because then what's the basis for any morality? Why do we have to act well to one another? Is it just self-interest? Well, let's let's pick up on that the, the idea of what science has to do in order to make some truth claim. I mean, in, in, in one in one sense, I mean, if you think about uh, all of life, it's constantly in flux. It's in motion. Our 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 own sensory apparatuses are in flux and in motion as we try to engage it. And yet, science sort of needs to fix it in a way to kind of freeze it for a moment in order to make some sort of truth claim. So what? What do you think that that well? What, how how do you think that changes the way we think about disease? But then then let's take it a step further. And then does that also affect the way we think about the evil of disease? Yeah. Well, I th I think it does. I mean, I think um, I think the, the the problem is this: science does what it does extremely well, but it only does one thing, which is science, and it's in a sense narrowed down. Um, the intellectual universe. And by intellectual, I don't mean only equations and philosophy and the like. I mean um, how we relate to and think about the world in every respect. And I think um, one, way to, one way to put this, one rubric to think about it, is um, when you think about causality, what kind of causality does uh, science think about and what does it leave out? It thinks about what Aristotle called the efficient cause and the material cause. It completely leaves out the formal cause and the final cause. What are we, what are, what are we there for? Which includes also what is a good human being? Um, we can a little bit talk about that when we, um, when we talk about, for example, bodily organs. A good heart is one that can pump blood. So we, here we're using the word good. But we're almost embarrassed to bring the word good into it. And then we want to keep it, um, the broader uh, con concept of good and evil, out of biology. And that's a problem. 
to yeah. me that's the problem right we there was always this question that uh, you know as you know I, I i'm a medical doctor as well and studied science i never practiced science i never did science myself but uh, one of the things that our my attendings would play a trick on us and say well what is what's the purpose of the heart then we would start to say and they would say no that's not the purpose there's no purpose to the heart that's the function of the heart right so we distribute we we separated out function and purpose for a good reason because sometimes our understandings of purpose final causes uh, can get in the way of our observations, right? So it, it can be biasing in that way. And so right. it's good to bracket that. The problem is, is that we don't know how to bring it back into conversation with uh, that, that deficient in material cause. So I think that's part of the issue as well. I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, um, it's, it's not that we shouldn't um, abstract the efficient and material cause from the others. But it does leave a, a giant hole there. I agree with you entirely. Yeah, let me, let me look, I, I, when I teach this sometimes, and I'm, I wanna stick with science just for a moment because I, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's helpful. Uh, when I teach, uh, I teach a religion and science class. And one of, the, one of the things I try to get students to believe is that, or to, to accept is that science gives us a certain kind of, uh, a kind of picture, a kind of, representation or a representation of the reality right it gives us it gives us a model and the model is useful up to a point but then part of the problem is, is we take the model as a kind of stand-in for the real thing itself and then we start to kind of reduce the real thing to the picture we've drawn of it and i think that that that's that's something science has to do because it has to simplify it has to get down to those those basic units that allow us to say what the important bits are, but then it, it never gets revivified in reality. We never let the reality exceed the model because we start to force the model upon reality. Right, right. And, and, I, and, so I, and I guess I'm wondering is, 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 is you know, does that then kind of uh, diminish our ability to pick up the, the plenum of reality again, if we just keep coming back with this single model? And I wonder if that's also part of the reason it, our society has a difficult time taking up with anything thicker than a kind of mere scientific description. Right. Well, you know, um, goodness is one of the transcendentals, but the other one um, where science really trips over itself in a sense is truth. Um, can can we have a concept of truth? Um, can we have a concept of goodness? Can we have a concept of truth? Can we have a concept of beauty? These are all the transcendentals, you know, the universal properties of being. Um, um, if, you know, maybe science can pretend that it doesn't believe in the good or the beautiful, which I don't think is really true. I think scientists in their heart of heart really do believe in those things, but, what happens when you come to truth? Can you believe in a concept of truth? And the problem is that um, there's a, I think there's a confusion here. Um, whether truth exists is not the same question as whether we can know the truth. And those two things sometimes get confused. Um, there's, a, there's a passage in Ulysses, excuse me for bringing James Joyce into absolutely everything. But um, there's a passage in Ulysses where Stephen Dedalus is pondering history. And he thinks to himself um, uh, that something was, when he's thinking about history, he's thinking that something was, even if not as history fabled it, right. fabled by the daughters of memory. So in other words, history is made into a fable by memory, by telling, by any kind of narrative fair enough, um, you can conclude from that that there is no such thing as history or no historical event, that it's all construction. And that's an equal error, I think. In fact, there is a there there, even if we can't know it perfectly. Right. And I, and I think, you know, all, all docs, all scientists, I think fundamentally kind of adhere to something like that. They really believe there is something there and then it's just about our bringing it into relief for our own knowing of it, right? And that's, that's the part that, 
that sometimes leads to a reduction and, 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 that, and that we've been sort of talking about reducing disease to our models or to the basic elements without letting life kind of dance forth in, a, in, a, in some other way. So, but, but, but I don't want to be too critical of science on that because science can also kind of bring things into relief that are, that are actually helpful for us to try to understand not only disease, but possibly even evil. So, I mean, what do you think about that? Well, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think uh, I think science has been um, vastly more illuminating than confusing. And um, one of the questions one often runs into, I don't know how you feel about it, Jeff, but um, whether there's any progress, whether it's always the case that every step we take forward, we also take one back. I don't happen to believe that. I think we are actually making some progress and even moral progress. Um, we don't believe in slavery anymore. I mean, I think, you know, if you want to take the fundamental moral evil, um, that's got to be it. But, um, but um, there, is, there, is, um, there is, I think, progress in, in history. But yeah, well, I, 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 you know, I mean, at one level, I, I, I certainly agree, uh, especially on, on your on your uh, last illustration. I guess, I guess, what I wonder though is, is you know, with our scientific uh, approaches, um, we we get one thing that comes into relief, and then ten more questions blossom, right? And yep. and it and so it just sort of keeps it keeps going that way, which I actually think might actually be a good thing for scientists to remember is that it, actually we don't get the full answer that it always opens up to the next set of questions. Well, I mean, I, mean, I won't speak for everybody, but um, I'm in a uh, constant state of um, perplexity because uh, every time I think I understand something, it turns out I really don't. And there's always more to do. And it's not just a cliche. I mean, yes, you put it into your papers and your grant applications that more research is required. But the plain fact is it really is. It really is true that, uh, that new questions pop up all the time. I mean, who on earth expected this COVID pandemic? Well, maybe Bill Gates did. I guess he did. A few really smart people did. But, uh, but I certainly didn't expect anything like this. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's talk a little bit about you know. Well, how how do you think science has helped to uh, correct our visions of evil, even in instances? We've talked about how maybe it's kind of led us to flatten out the world. Well, let's talk about how it might actually have sharpened our focus on the question of evil itself. Well, I mean, I'll tell you one thing that I've been that I've been thinking a lot about in this pandemic, and it has to do with the Book of Job too. Um, the interlocutors of Job, and I prefer that word to friends, the interlocutors of Job tell him, if you're suffering, it's because you've sinned. Now, um, there is a very, very basic uh, theological philosophical question there, but Thomas Aquinas wrote that, um, that it's very, that, the friends are wrong. The interlocutors are wrong. Um, Job is not being punished for his sins. Um, it is not the case that suffering is proportionate to one's sins. There is no proportionality there, I guess, is, is uh, the thing to say. I think it's a condition of being human that we have a sense of sin. Um, now, what has science done? Well, one thing science has done, I think, is it's illustrated that disease by and large is no one's fault, um, is not anybody's fault. This pandemic is not the fault of the people in Wuhan or even the pangolins in Wuhan. It's not anybody's fault. It is a function of living in the natural world where, um, where one good may occur at the expense of the other. The fire doesn't mean to um, destroy the air, but it does so incidentally. The E. coli and the, um, I guess it's called now SARS-2, CoV-2 is the official name. It doesn't mean to do, to destroy human beings. And, you know, malice aside, no human being wants to give the disease to anybody else. It's nobody's fault. Do you think the, the traditional categories of, uh, 
natural evil and moral evil are helpful here, or do they do they further confuse? What, what do you think? Well, I do think they're very helpful, and I think you know, I think it's still a valid um, division of evil that Thomas Aquinas um, he said, "Pina and culpa." Um, there is, and to put it into um, more contemporary terms, the theologian Brian Davis um, said, talks about evil suffered and evil done. In other words, not what you might call natural evil and moral evil um, in other terms. Uh, yes, I think that, I think um, that is still a valid division of evil. Yeah, and, and one more thing is that Thomas Aquinas is very clear about which one is worse, mm -hmm. um, which is fault. Mm -hmm. Moral evil is worse than natural evil, even though there's, uh, there's a lot of suffering from both. Let, let's let's talk a little bit of, about about uh, about this, and, and maybe I'll trouble the waters on on Great. natural evil for a, for a bit uh, for a moment, because there's a way that that you know no one's at fault, and I think it was certainly whatever fault there might have been of any human, it, it was certainly an unanticipated fault, but. Uh, you know, there's a way of, of uh, you know, I, I've seen a few articles to say, ah, the real problem is the way that we, uh, the, the way it's the communist government of China that uh, uh, led to the starvations of masses that then led to the rise of wet markets that then led to the housing of wild animals next to domesticated animals. I mean, so there's there and then and then another way to think about it is, well, is this all could this be a problem of, of global capitalism and a global technological? I mean, the fact that we're so mobile and we can move from point A to point B, it can just engulf the world. So what, 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 what do you think about that? Well, I think, I mean, absolutely so. Um, and moral evil brings, uh, brings in its trail natural evil. Um, and that's, that's the issue here, is that human beings are capable of doing very, very bad things. I want to just uh, make one more caveat. When I say that disease is, is nobody's fault, that's not 100% true, is it? Right. When we think about people harming themselves or others, um, there's malice. And um, malice comes in a lot of different flavors. Um, it can be um, sins of omission and sins of commission, certainly. I think when you talk about the harm that technology and capitalism, global capitalism, and it's not just capitalism because here's China, which is ostensibly not a capitalistic country. Um, you know, I think it comes back to uh, what human beings do. The human beings can do a lot of harm. And um, the <clears throat> deficiencies in love um, are, are very, very dangerous um, in, in many ways. Yeah. I want, to, I want to turn now for a moment. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about philosophy. We've talked a little bit of, a lot about science, about how science might thin out the world and therefore kind of give us a reductive understanding. Uh, but we also talked about how maybe science can help help uh, help us kind of demarcate what what we call evil, what we don't call evil, whether it's nat whether it's a natural evil or a moral evil, you know, that kind of thing. But but. Uh, we talked about the transcendentals of the good and the true, but I, I want to turn now to the, the, the beautiful and specifically, you know, science can maybe solve the problem uh, in the sense of it can fix a, a kind of localized version of some evil that arises, let's say a disease like COVID. But what, what science, I, I don't think, can do, what science can't do and what science actually issues doing rightfully is is it can't give meaning or uh, a way uh, a way to, to, to make sense of something like this. And so you've, I know you and I both love uh, literature, uh, Dante, and uh, you're of course a big James Joyce fan. I mean, what, it, and of course Job itself is, is one of the, I mean, it's a great work of world literature, right? Because it deals with one of the perennial problems of, of, of human suffering. So, I, I mean, what do you think, uh, you know, we can't, we want to solve it because we want to be good scientists. We want to find the efficient cause and then we want to reverse the efficient cause or find the material cause and change the material cause. But what, what, and that, that solves a problem, but it doesn't solve the big problem. 
which is the, the kind of human frailty. And so I'd like us to think about literature and, uh, and art as a way of taking up with a question like evil. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think first of all, um, it's important for scientists to step out of the laboratory every now and then. Um, you know, you have to spend your, you have to spend a lot of time there to, to, uh, to get your data. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, obviously. But um, I don't think that um, even the category of truth is sufficient. Um, and um, even assuming that scientists believe in the category of truth, which at a certain level they have to, but I think um, when you come down to it, scientists um, also believe in the categories of beauty and good. And this breaks through every now and then, um, not just not to diminish finding a cure of a horrible disease, but it's not just that, it's not only that. Um, you can talk about the good in simply understanding something. You can talk, people, scientists all the time, talk about the beauty of data, the beauty of an equation, the elegance of an, of an equation. Yeah. I mean, all of this, it's, it's a manner of speaking, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot deeper than that. And that is that, um, you know, what's, what's, a, what's a good analogy? Um, I'm not sure what a good analogy is, but, um, even 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 Occam's razor is, is is you know simplicity is really more of an aesthetic Excellent. category than it, it would be a, a truth category, right? Yes, uh, yes. So so I mean even 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 the, the the scientific razor's edge that we want to have that kind of says ah the single explanation given the complexity of the world why would we think the single why well it's it's it seems to be more of an aesthetic about it right so and, and and of course we've all read the experiments you know the reports of the experiments where this was an elegant experiment you know that 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 is commented on you know so i i think there there is certainly that there right right and um you know i was um yeah just a, a, an anecdote about that i i was once a witness to a fierce argument um that i was completely incompetent to enter into, so I just sat and listened. Um, it was about the solution to the four colored map theorem. And it was a solution that basically consisted in a computer algorithm to try every conceivable map that you could make. And does it ever require more than four colors? And the argument was, is this a proof or not? Uh, does this prove the four color map theorem? And um, well, I think the, the, the objection to it was purely aesthetic. Um, it was, there's something very ineloquent, elegant about trying every conceivable combination of maps and colors and so forth. Um, so yeah, I think, I think um, aesthetics is very much a part of science, but it's, I think the, um, the bigger issue is that scientists maybe shouldn't take science as a religious worldview. Mm. As valid as it is, um, it's, um, it's very valuable in, uh, for the intellect and for practical purposes, but that doesn't mean it's a complete world system and I don't think it is. One of my favorite uh, philosophers is uh, Ernst Cassirer, and he talks about uh, different symbolic forms that we mm -hmm. use to take up with different kinds of problems. And so one symbolic form, he would say, is art. Another would be, he, he, he puts in language as a symbolic form. Yeah. He also puts in history. Uh, he puts another symbolic form is religion. Uh, and uh, yet another one is science. And, and he, he kind of carves out a domain of functionality for each of those symbolic forms that kind of mediate reality, but for different purposes. Science mediates reality for kind of certain kind of purpose of truth, but uh, you know, uh, uh, religion might mediate reality because of uh, uh, through a kind of moral lens, for instance, as opposed to a strictly, you know, the the the, the symbolic form of, of of science is of course mathematics. The symbolic form of literature or religion would be the art form itself, right? The poetic itself. So I, I'd like us to now to think about, well, what does, how does, what does poetry or art uh, or religion do um, to 
solve the problem of evil um, in, in a way that 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 science can't possibly do. And I know you've thought on this some, so. Well, you know, um, I uh, I do think um, that when we when we think about what we're doing this for, in other words, I think what we're we're um, what science needs to think about more and maybe art gets to this a little bit more and beauty gets to this more is the telos, the end, what we're doing it for. Why are we so attached to life? Why do we want to do the good? Why, where does all this, where do all these impulses come from? Were we just put on earth to, uh, to eat well and reproduce? I don't think so. Um, I think you know there's there's more to it than there's more to it than that. And unless you have some concept of the good and the end and why you're doing it, um, there's a real problem. Uh, I think, um, and I think we absolutely need a concept of telos. And it's not obvious how science alone, in the narrow sense of science, let's say, um, how that can give that to us. It's again, one has to step out of the laboratory. Um, even a scientist needs to ponder why the human being is valuable, what the human being is good for other than instrumentality. You know, why are we here? Right. Well, I, I, that's what I tell my students all the time is that, that if, if they get out of bed in the morning, even to just go do their scientific experiments, right. they have a telos. They have some notion that something is good in what it is that they're doing. And, and even if it's only for their own goods, you know, to do well in school in order to get into medical school, there's still some sense of goodness that, that has to be a part of just getting out of bed and going to do it. Um, I, I, the, the, the other thing is I, I've been thinking about, uh, well, I, I've often thought, I've taught Job a few times, uh, and I've also just taught a, a, a film called Tree of Life, which is, of course, a Terrence Malick film that is essentially the Job story in the cinematic form. And, uh, and, I, and I started, you know, as I've taught that, I've said, you know, I, I imagine there could be a medical description of what Job was suffering. And I can imagine it was, you know, Job is a 78 year old man with this, 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 and start just describing what is going on. <laughs> lay that alongside the poetics of what is being done in the poem itself, uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a stark contrast as to the kind of work that each of those are doing on me as the, as the, as the person who's reading it for medical information versus reading it for, for the poetry and the beauty's sake. Um, and so I, I wonder if, if there's a way that our society, which is so given to science, can uh, ever, and so given to factual information uh, and uh, without necessarily understanding how those facts are constructed or how those facts are in, uh, 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 come into relief for us, right? Um, I, I wonder if, if, if there's a way to bring those, th those two different descriptions together given our society. And I, I think that's part of the reason we feel such loss right now is that there's no way to, to, to kind of bring it under some sort of telos. Okay, all right, Jeff, I wanna, I wanna pick up on a couple of things you were saying. Um, first, um, our society is given to science and technology, yes, but there's, a, there's also a fair amount of anti-science feeling out there. And what is that about? So that's the first question I wanna bring up. And the, um, the second thing is, so I too have taught the book of Job. And I want to ask you what you make of the ending of the book of Job. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I ask for a reason. Yeah. You know, I've never been good at the, 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 the prosaic ending. Um, I, I prefer the, the poetic ending of, of, of uh, 38, one, the first few chapters, I think of 38 there. But the, uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I've always, it, it's sort of like, you, you know, you're, you're searching for meaning and the meaning is, is, is in the poetic ending. You're searching for meaning and the meaning itself is in the poetry and the grandeur of, of, of finding one's place within uh, in this chaotic whirlwind conversation with all that exists, right? You start, Job starts to have to realize that he, he has to put himself into the fabric of the universe 
that he is not the master and possessor of it, but that he himself is creature and that he himself can only find a certain kind of happiness in the midst of it. And then he gets all the goodies at the end in the, in the, in the, in the prosaic ending. And, and it's sort of like, ah, it's just back to a kind of instrumental way of thinking. And I don't know what to make of that. And I, I tell both of those stories to students and I kind of leave it with them to kind of ponder how, how, how do we make sense of this poet, this poetic ending and then this more prosaic ending, you know? Well, the thing is, as you know, the, uh, the book of Job um, is kind of a frame device in, from the literary point of view. You know, there's, there's the folktale at the beginning, the folktale at the end. And to put it mildly, the sources, authors of the book of Job's were no fools. And they put it in there for, for they, they must have had some good reason in mind. And I think what they are, um, what they are trying to make us think about is what is a cure? Mm. You know, there's a spiritual illness as well as a physical illness. And there's some analogizing of the two. And Job has an experience. He comes out of the whirlwind saying that he's, he's heard God, he's seen God, he's seen something, he's learned something new. Then he gets all the goodies. And I don't think that they're supposed to have exactly the same meaning as the goodies he had at the beginning. Not to diminish the goodies he had at the beginning, you know, family and so forth, but, but it's, it's, there's something different. And there's, you know, to put it into, if I may, Augustinian terms, um, when Augustine talked about happy, oh, happy fault, oh, oh, Felix culpa. What does he mean by that? There is a difference between being a non-sentient being in Eden versus falling and then being cured of that afterwards. Right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite Michael back in. I think we have some questions. We've been kind of, have hope we haven't bored too many people. I hope some questions. <laughs> well, um, we have quite a few questions. Uh, that have come in, some uh, that are bringing us back to um, the very heart of the problem of evil and some that uh, will sort of continue to sort of pick at um, the edges. And so uh, uh, two questions, um, uh, first from Dennis, uh, Denise Ertrell, um, who asks, isn't disease just a natural phenomenon? Um, it's the way viruses, bacteria, cancer cells, and other living organisms survive by living off their human hosts and toxic plants and insects and animals defend themselves from invaders. Such yeah. diseases are only viewed as evil from a human perspective. And that ties very much with uh, uh, Father Martin Tinui, um, who is coming actually from Kenya, who is a, a, both a priest and, and professor out there who effectively asks the same question, but says, you know, is, is this question of evil just one of subjectivity? Well, um, first of all, um, evil is certainly a natural, this kind of evil disease is certainly a natural phenomenon. And it goes back to something I was saying earlier that um, the E. coli or the, or the, or the SARS-2, CoV-2, they don't mean any harm, they're just living their lives. And so they're, um, they're uh, thriving, but at our expense. So one species lives at another expense. That's also true when we eat food for that matter. Uh, we are thriving at the expense of another, of another species. So certainly it is a natural phenomenon. Where I take issue is with the word just. Is it just a natural phenomenon? And yes, it is a natural phenomenon, but I don't think it's just a natural phenomenon. And I think, um, you know, human beings are special. If you wanna say this is subjective, fine, I'll say it and be subjective about it, that we do have a special place in, in this world. And whether there are other species fairly much like us out there in the universe, well, perhaps there are, probably there are, um, but that doesn't make a, us any less special. Um, what makes us special? Well, for one thing, our intellects, um, the fact that we can observe ourselves in ways that other species cannot, that we can affect the world in ways that other species cannot for good and ill. But I do think that it's not, I, I quarrel with the word just, it's just subjective. 
Well, and I, I, I you know, I, I'll chime in there as well. I mean, it, there's a way of looking at it if we say it is just a natural phenomenon that it, it, it's like, okay, these viruses are doing what viruses do. And if you take an evolutionary uh, long view, uh, it is, uh, there's some philosophers out there, Keith Ansel uh, Pearson, for instance, who sort of sees viruses as this kind of rhizomatic uh, uh, set of entities that kind of are constantly putting in, uh, rather than seeing evolution as a tree-like branch of, of, of cell divisions and mutations, right? He sees it as, as this kind of crosstalk that viruses actually just as natural phenomena, uh, just sort of part of the way that, that species talk back and forth or trade information, DNA, RNA, back and forth with each other. Uh, and so, so there's a way that then if you say, well, it's just a natural phenomenon, then this is just the evolutionary process. Uh, what, 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 what's the point of us you know, fighting against it? You know? so, so there, you know, the, the, you know, I, I, think, I think, yeah, I think it is just a natural phenomenon. I agree, it, 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 we can, what, what makes that evil? And I think the, 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 the point is, is that, well, there's a way in which this human could evolve out of existence and something good might be lost if this human is uh, evolved out of existence. And I think that, that, just, that just nature part probably doesn't deal with that latter part of that, uh, that point very easily. Right. I want to come back to one other thing you said earlier, Jeff. You were talking about um, technology for all that it's done for us. It's also done some things against us. And why should we care about that? Um, if, um, if we're just um, natural beings doing what we do, why should we care about the rest of the world? Um, or do we care about the world only instrumentally and that it can do good for us? Well, I think the answer to that is no. We are natural beings in the context of a whole natural world. And yes, we have to respect the natural world for instrumental reasons, but I think it is also, um, there is um, the, there is, um, there is essential goodness in the existence of the world and it goes beyond human beings. There is a reason for us to worry about things like ecology and the harm that technology can do. Right, I mean, I, I think it goes back to, you know, it, or do we think of ourselves as masters and possessors and therefore the, 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 the top species and therefore the, the orchestrator of all good things for humans, right? Or do we have to think of ourselves as in part of a, 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 a whole, right? That we are, we are actually part of a whole that we have a place in that whole and to find that harmonious place is actually part of our vocation. And I, and I think that's what, uh, that's, I think this is what going back to Job's, you know, uh, the story of Job is Job has to find his place in order for the world to make sense to him, you know? So uh, then on the flip side, we have from Andrew Mercer, um, a question in my reading of early Christian literature, I see a heavily, a heavy emphasis on bodily corruption as an evil result of the fall. Um, what role, if any, do you think this idea should play in a Christian understanding of disease? Yeah. Classic well, question. Yeah, Augustine did say that, of course. And, um, you know, that's, um, I think there are as many, there are a lot of views of the fall. And yes, in early Christianity, that was the way people tended to look at it. I don't, I think this is one of the things that, um, science can help us with. I don't really b believe that is the case. I think that um, human beings, and if I want to cite a, uh, a literary source, it might even be Franz Kafka, who wrote a fair amount about the fall in a different way, but that um, the fall consists in knowing good and evil and being able to do evil and having a concept of evil, which other animals really don't, I don't think. I mean, I think that's, you can look at sort of rudimentary morality in other species, but I don't think it's morality in the sense that we have it. So I think that um, um, I don't accept the view that disease is by and large um, the direct result of fallenness. It is simply a, uh, it is a matter of, um, I think the fall consists in knowing that, um, that we suffer, not just suffering, but knowing that we suffer. This is something that, uh, 
that, um, that C.S. Lewis talks about in The Problem of Pain and other authors have talked about it as well. Well, I was, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, yeah sorry. I, I was going to say it, it's it might be worth it to to think about uh, the the corruption in a in a slightly less juridical sense. I mean, there's a there's a there's a way in which, by virtue of the fall, that we decay. Uh, that that's a it's more of a state of being, and and um, and then. Part of, part of the early church's whole thinking on this, and I think of Basil of Caesarea, for instance, is to try to then, okay, you know, this is our, this is part of our state of being, this, this fact that bodies decay. And, and, and so thinking of it, thinking of sin and death in terms of this is, this is what bodies do, this is the state of being, um, it, it gives it a, a, a less, uh, we're not as, it's not like, oh, I sinned and therefore I, I am decaying. It's like no. The condition is that we all exactly. have this this sort of entropy that's going to to lead to decay, and that we're we're called not to that, right? We're not called to that at all in terms of the the, the grand scheme of the of the story of of of, of salvation, it, it, and that we in part participate with God in healing that decay and in healing the the, the fracture of 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 sin. Um, by virtue of doing our science, by virtue of trying to alleviate suffering, knowing full well that in this in this life that we're we're never going to to achieve the ultimate life, right? And that's back to to going to 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 Job trying to find himself in the midst of the chaos of talking with God, right? To find his position, and I think that's what Basil of Caesarea is talking about in the Long Rule Fifty Five. He's not at all. He's saying, look, there there are some illnesses that. You know, I mean, he even gives examples where, you know, some people might be, in, you know, encouraged by their spiritual director to engage in certain kinds of practices vis-a-vis -vis their body, uh, simply because that's what they need, right? That's the therapy that they need. And if some person with the same problem may have a different sort of constitution and those sorts of exercises won't be as helpful. And so, that, so even if you have the same disease, you might have two different kinds of approaches. And well, I, I sort of see it that way and that, that the, the, the good physician is the one who tries to figure out, well, what can be done that, 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 that can heal this Without over, without imagining oneself as the master and possessor of some other of disease or of that person's body, so I, I think there's still the, the early church did think about it in, in terms of corruption. But Basil of Caesarea, at the same time, also is giving us ways that we can take up with and participate in the healing that uh, of creation and the healing of the human. Right. I, want, I want to bring up one other point here. Um, well, actually, two other points. First, um, although some ancient Christian, um, early Christian thinkers um, saw the body primarily as a, as a site of corruption. We also have to remember that Augustine gives us a much more nuanced view here. The body is a good. Um, he was in, in contrast to, for example, the Manichaeans who looked at it as the source of sin and an evil that weighs down the soul. He looked at the body as a good. Now, one the other point is this. Jeff, you were asking before about <clears throat> what science teaches us. And um, the, the, the problem, one of the, I probably have um, the most interesting chapter, although I fundamentally disagree um, with him, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, he talks about animal pain. He raises the important question of, of whether and why, why do animals suffer? What is animal pain? And he comes, um, he comes to a conclusion that I simply cannot accept, which is he argues in effect that animals don't suffer. It's not that they don't have acute pain and aversive behavior, but they don't have um, the consciousness and intellect and all the rest that humans have who suffer. Now, here's something that I think biology has taught us is that we're not that different from all the other species. Um, we are 99 percent um, chimpanzee. We are about 60 percent banana. There are homologous genes in bananas to about 60 percent of our genes. So we're not that different from the rest of the universe. And the other thing that I think biology has taught us about neuroscience is 
that the nervous system and intellect of certain species, dogs, horses, aardvarks, and such, they're not, that, they're not all that different from the human beings. So I don't think we should look at ourselves as separate from fallen from um, fallen in the sense that the rest of the world is not. We are also united with with the rest of the world. Right. Yeah. Mm. Um, so here, this is a question coming from an anonymous attendee um, regarding the issue of disease and natural moral moral causality. It seems like you're talking about disease as having a clear or single causality. Even in the case of a virus, exposure to the virus does not necessarily equate a disease state. There are a host of genetic, which we can call natural and not moral, and lifestyle, which we surely are moral in some way, elements that influence the disease state. Yes. So it seems that the separation of moral and natural in the case of disease assumes we can name the causality and that there's a single or traceable causality to a particular disease. Well, no, so it's can we tease out the moral elements from the natural and how? Yeah. Tough question. I, I think Jeff, probably you, you know, as a practicing uh, physician, I mean, you, you know, you can probably speak to this better than I can. But I think, uh, you know, one of the reason I brought up the caveat that it's not strictly true and it's not as simple as we're making it here. Um, yes, lifestyle matters. And there is a moral aspect to that for sure. Um, some diseases are someone's fault um, in one way or another. So I think I'll just uh, let Jeff answer the rest of that. I mean, it, it's it, in part, I mean, it's it, the, this question is, it, it, I think it is very astute and it was, it was sort of what I was trying to get at with the idea of the mere, it's just natural, right? It, 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 and that's why I brought up the idea that, well, hold it, you know, that it might actually be this whole uh, techno-political capital situation that we're in that kind of enables this virus to, 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 to do this. And so this is exactly the point. And I think, I think something we learned with the rise of, of, of uh, HIV was that we used to think viruses just attack the body or we thought that bacteria attack. In reality, it's it's a it's a it's the virus doing something and the body responding that leads to, in, especially in the inflammatory response that we see with this disease. And that's something that we learn uh, with with the rise of HIV because the disease models that we had before just were not that good. So it's always the natural thing, virus attacking the natural body and the body is doing something natural and it's responding with this inflammatory response that actually ends up killing the body, right? So it, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, even at that level, you know, what is natural with regard to disease is already a kind of a harmony between a, a, a one organism with another and that organism's response to the other organism. So it's already a kind of dance that's already taking place. Mm -hmm. Throw in the fact that we are very much social creatures and that that you know some some people with a certain genetic predisposition for coronary artery disease grows up in a culture where they eat fresh vegetables all the time hardly any red meats and 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 say throw in some fish right those people aren't going to get coronary artery disease right so so the culture itself is contributing to the manifestation of 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 what it is to be a a, a living being in that instance. And, and I, I think it goes much deeper than that. And I, I point this out to people all the time. And I, I think it, I still think we need to ponder this, but the, the human animal is the animal that by nature is cultured. It, it's, it's by nature, we need language, which is culture. By nature, we need symbolic forms to take up with reality. We, we don't, we don't just one-to-one -one take up with reality. We, we use words, we use art, we use uh, we use stories, we use mathematics, right? So there's a way in which th th there's no way our, you know, we often talk about narrative identities and the importance of the narrative identity for the Christian, uh, tying my story to the story of the sufferings of Christ, right? Well, that is culture, that shapes my identity, that shapes who I am, right? Um, so so I think this person is exactly right. And I think that, that our, our simplistic ways of thinking about nature uh, might be problematic uh, 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 at many levels. And that's where, you know, if we go too naturalistic on something, it, it might be that we actually are obscuring 
some fundamental realities just by virtue of highlighting a scientific reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to bring up one other point on that, uh, which is um, where, again, where science has helped us to understand things. Um, in the 19th century, there was a kind of a war going on between Louis Pasteur and Claude Bernard, the uh, two giants of uh, medical science in the 19th century, um, the germ versus the terrain. And um, Louis Pasteur of the germ and what Georges Canguillem calls the uh, ontological theory, some ontological enemy attacking us versus the terrain, the ground in which the disease, and that Canguillem calls that the naturalistic um, theory of medicine. And that debate basically has evaporated uh, because we understand that it's an interaction. Um, the microbe, even when we're talking about the ontological disease, the poster child for ontological diseases, infectious diseases, we know it's not like that really. Um, we know very well that it's an interaction between the host and the microbe, and there are all kinds of environmental factors and genetic factors that enter into that. Right, and that's where I was going at the very beginning where I was talking about how science might actually give us a false vision of what's going on by, by because, because it, the germ theory was, and the germ theory of, of, of infectious diseases was, it, it was extremely useful uh, at a time and we just kind of latched onto it and it became the dominant way of thinking about it and it foreclosed on us being able to see that, and I think that only really came into relief with the rise of HIV where we, we started to be able to see that, oh my goodness, this is a symphony of activity going on here. But I would say that um, science was very important in bringing that to the fore because even before there was HIV, um, the, uh, you, brought up, uh, you brought up coronary artery disease and atherosclerosis. It's actually a field I worked on 30 years ago. And um, um, there it was very well understood that it wasn't just you know, bad stuff um, attacking us, uh, or it wasn't our nature either, it was the interaction of the two. So Stephen, how does this relate to a mantra that I've heard you sort of bring, or a motto you've brought out before that all disease is diminishment? And how does that relate to this question of, of evil again? Well, okay. So I think that is um, the Augustinian Thomistic view of um, of disease as the privation of the good in a subject. And it's, um, I think in uh, a few minutes, I probably won't be able to go into um, all the caveats that one ought to go into. Uh, for one thing, it leaves very open the definition of what is or isn't a disease. Uh, for example, um, there's the gray area of disabilities, which I think should be distinguished from disease, not exactly the same thing as disease. But I think when you, um, for about 20 years, I taught um, the, the second year medical students their cellular pathology and immunology course. And one of the th things I always thought about was, um, can we view disease as a diminishment? as a loss of a function. And without being able to support it in the time allotted, I think one can. Um, we, for example, recognize in cancer, um, the accumulation of mutations leading to a genetic catastrophe. Um, so each time you lose a genetic function, a gene, you're losing some of the integrity of the cell and it, blooms into this genetic catastrophe of cancer and so on down the line. I think all diseases can be described that way. And I'm talking now, not in a moral sense, but in a, uh, let's say a mechanistic sense. Mm -hmm. All right, so another question, um, sort of tying back to, to Jeff, what you were just talking about a few minutes ago, a question from Jim Perry. Uh, Julian of Norwich, who lived and wrote during a plague in the 1300s, asked why must we suffer and had a vision that could be summarized as all will be well. Is this how Christians should understand suffering? Perhaps as an opportunity to become closer to God, to share Christ's own suffering, but with only, but with only hope that all will be well. 
Well, I, I, I think absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, um, I mean, I, I think that we, it, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to be, you know, I, and I don't want to, I don't want to use this word. I was going to say optimistic. I mean, we, we see, we see the chaos of COVID and it, it may not be the worst thing that we've ever faced. I mean, there have been other things that we, we've gotten through, but the Christian message is, is, is always that even in death, all will be well. Uh, and and it, it is, it is that hope uh, that, that is, is what keeps us and allows us to put one step, one foot in front of the other in the midst of it. Right. So I, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, I mean, I think there's a way of tying Julian of Norwich's vision to uh, even to uh, what we were saying earlier about Job, you know, in the midst of the chaos, Job finds his place that, that he, and he, and he falls silent uh, before this, this, this mystery of uh, that, 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 that he finds hope in the midst of that chaos. So, so I think that's right. It, it is that all will be well, you know? Yeah, I think, um, I think that is the meaning of Job's cure, if you will. And uh, yes, um, amen to that. Well, I think that's a, a great uh, way to sort of bring our conversation today to a close. Um, with this Julian of Norwich uh, sort of reference, I, I also want to invite you once more to join us this Thursday um, with a, uh, a, an exploration in another important female figure in the history of Christian thought. I'm Hildegarda Bingham uh, with a, a, a webinar, sort of no preparation necessary introduction um, led by Barbara Newman. Um, and this is gonna be a live stream only event. We won't be having the recording available after. So I encourage you to tune in at 7 p.m. Um, I want to thank all of our sponsors, America Media, the Society of Catholic Scientists, all the different Catholic institutes who helped um, advertise this uh, and, and make this available to their students at the universities um, where they're at. Uh, I wanna thank the John Templeton Foundation um, who has helped sponsor this event tonight and, and fund this event. Um, but most importantly, um, I wanna thank Jeff and Stephen um, for a, a engaging conversation. Uh, watch out once this uh, shelter in place comes to a close, we might just bring this on the road um, and bring you guys out together. Um, if you want to help support our work here at the Lumen Christie Institute um, to put on more conversations like this, to continue to engage uh, our current moment and our culture um, with the resources that come from the Christian intellectual tradition, um, you can support us today over at www.lumenchristi.org donate, um, where you'll also find an abundance of resources, uh, videos that you can watch uh, during this time of sheltering in place, and uh, you can see all of our upcoming events. Um, otherwise, once more, uh, thank you to both of you, our speakers, on behalf of our audience. I will clap for you. And um, I hope that you all continue to stay safe, stay home, and wash your hands. Yep. God bless all of you. Yeah. All right. Take care. Well.